Welcome to episode 68 of the Black in Fashion podcast. Oh my God, guys, this is probably going to be one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> Because I got Felicia on the line, and Felicia is everything. Let me just take one second and um, make sure I acknowledge our one of our sponsors for this episode. Uh, Kara Kinks is a hair re- rejuvenation oil that helps promote healthy hair growth, decrease split ends and breakage. The aroma is divine, and your cap and your cap and your scalp will shine. Shop KaraKinks.com. Now, Felicia is in the building. <laughs> So I just want to tell you guys a little bit about Felicia and how we met. We actually met via social media. (laughs) She reached out to me and we started a conversation. We both have the same mission behind fashion. And just want to give you guys just a little sum sum about the assembly line. It's a full service fashion consulting firm that focuses on cultivating and developing emerging talent by providing resources and guidance on all fronts. They provide various services, including project management, brand building, creative services, Services, product development, and all-around consulting to build new brands and elevate established fashion businesses. Their mission is to empower entrepreneurs at any stage of their business and is here to help build your brand from concept to consumer and everything in between. So, Felicia, we're about to unpack all of that. So I just have this little, um, just a little segment that I do before I start every show, kind of like a little icebreaker. It's called mm-hmm. This and That. So, Felicia, tell me, would you prefer trenches or motorcycle jackets? You said trenches? Or motorcycle jackets. Ooh, definitely motorcycle jackets. A mule or a stiletto? Stiletto. Uh, a fedora or a brim? Brim. Big old brim. Uh, yeah. Under boob or side boob? <laughs> side boob. <laughs> and are you a skinny pant girl or are you a flare pant girl? Skinny pant. Skinny pants. So, Felicia, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you started your career in fashion. Awesome. So, my parents actually were from New York and New Jersey. So, I was born in Connecticut. Uh, we moved to the South in 1990, and I've been here ever since. Um, I ended up going to Georgia Southern University to get my degree in fashion merchandising, and then I moved to Atlanta in 2006. Um, I always knew I wanted to be in fashion. I just didn't know that there was a whole entire world outside of design until I got to high school. Um, had a really great mentor in high school that really showed me the world of business of fashion, and I really was intrigued by that. My parents actually owned three different sunglass stores when I was in high school. So I worked for my mom. I went to meetings with her. Um, we, I would buy like Gucci Chanel glasses with her. And I was just so interested in like that side of fashion. And I could not sketch or sew. And I did not have the patience for sewing. Um, so I went to a trade show with my mom. And that's when I really knew for sure that's what I wanted to do. We went to the Surf Expo in Orlando, Florida. And I saw all the trade show booths. I saw buyers. I saw little mini runway shows. And I was like, this is where it's at. Like, this is the world I want to be in. And that was when I was 16. So ever since I was 16, I went ahead and made the decision that merchandising was really the route that I wanted to go. Um, Not really knowing that, you know, buying versus merchandising and the difference until I got to college. And I made that decision to go into the the world of wholesale and sales. Um, So I spent, you know, over 10 years in the wholesale world. I started my career in 
a showroom in New York City um, on 39th and 7th. I was at a showroom that sold about seven different clothing lines. Uh, and that is where I really got my, you know, my experience in the hustle of sales. Um, you know, if you can sell anything in New York, you can make it anywhere. Amen <laughs> to <real>. that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I knew that New York wasn't the place for me, as, you know, as many girls think that that's the one and only place to be for fashion in the U.S., or LA, like I really wanted to live in the South. And I made that hard decision, you know, to move to Atlanta after my internship and really fight hard to work in fashion. And that's been, you know, an uphill battle for the past what, almost 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I spent a long time in New York when I was a kid and I knew the hustle and bustle and what I was getting myself into. And that was just reconfirmed when I went for my internship. I was like, this is not the lifestyle I want. I want to do what I'm passionate about, but this hustle is like not really, you know, I want a quality of life, but I know I can afford my apartment and have a car. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, moved, like, oh, yeah. I moved my ass to Atlanta and it's been great. But yeah, so that's where how I got to, you know, today I've been here almost 15 years. Gotcha. Can you go into a little bit more detail on what exactly merchandising is? I feel like a lot of our listeners think that, you know, they throw merchandising and buying and sales and everything, you know, of course, all in there in one in one place and not really know how to define it. Can you possibly break that down? I had, I've only overheard one quote about merchandising and I want you to tell me, is this true? Uh, merchandising is finding, is creating or making or having the right product in the right place at the right time for the right price. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so just breaking down merchandising. So that was my general degree. And mm-hmm. with that degree, you can go at, you know, several different ways. Um, we even had like bridal plan. What is it? Wedding planning under that or sales or retail management. So a lot of it was under merchandising as a general degree right. versus design. So again, I was never going to go down the design route. Um, and I knew I was going to do the merchandising degree, which led me down a path of sales. So I spent my my part of merchandising was all wholesale sales. So in that, what I did with merchandising was merchandising our actual booths when we did trade shows, but Mm -hmm. also our own showroom, which is similar to a retail store. So in Atlanta, different from New York, obviously New York has a lot of showrooms. Chicago has a mart, you know, LA has a mart, Atlanta has a mart with permanent showrooms. So I manage several showrooms. So inside of a showroom, you'll have several brands that, you know, at any point that you represent. So we're responsible for making sure that that is a visually appealing, you know, showroom space for buyers to come in and purchase. So on a regular basis, if we're not on the road or seeing clients at their location, we do have to merchandise our own showrooms for trade shows and invite the guests in. In the South, you know, we have this mentality and like we're Southern hospitality is a little different than the hustle and bustle of a show per se, like Coterie. Mm -hmm. Um, When you come to Atlanta, you are getting literally a mimosa and like some catered food. So we have this entire show set up where we are merchandising the windows. You know, we do different themes based on the collections. So it it really becomes this kind of retail experience, but in the wholesale world, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, So that's really where I got a lot of my visual experience from was just working with buyers um, and understanding and being able to merchandise a designer's collection even if they merchandise it a certain way I still make my cuts based on the buyers and how I know my buyers appointments are going to go so for example we had a really large brand that had like 300 SKUs 
I can't show 300 SKUs. So I'm going to make the best choice knowing what my market wants and the buyers that are coming in. I'm going to cut it, merchandise it by color, take out a bunch of the pieces that we don't feel like are going to sell and really make it a curated collection. So we're still responsible, you know, for for representing the brand and not necessarily like changing it, but also curating it to fit in the showroom, if that makes sense. I can't show a 300 piece collection. Right. So I had to curate those pieces. So when you walk into our showrooms at any different showroom that I worked at, you're getting a full experience, but you as a buyer can see what it looks like hanging on your shelf in your store. So that is part of the reason why, you know, when we do consulting with designers, it's like, you got to think of how does your collection look? Not just one statement piece, but as a, as a collection hanging on a store's rack. Gotcha. So that's really where, how I use merchandising in the sales world under wholesale specifically. Gotcha. Do you feel that this is something that you have to go to school and get a degree in? Or do you feel like this is something that can be learned from good experience in the right context? No, I think you can absolutely get, you know, go straight to, you know, volunteering at showrooms and working at a trade show and working your way up. I don't, I don't feel like everything I ever learned or what I did in college helped me. It was really everything outside of school that helped me, you know, with the experience that I had being in trade shows and understanding the hustle in the show world is really helpful. And there's so many shows and showrooms that have um, that hire girls day, day rate, you know, to pay you to come and help them at shows. I think that's the best experience you can get is just volunteering or, you know, offering to work for these shows and just assisting and helping and getting an inside look of what that looks like and assisting the sales rep. Gotcha. That makes sense. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, transitioning out of like that workforce and, you know, beginning entrepreneurship, how was that transition for you? It was wild. I mean, I think I come from a different generation. I'm not even, what, 30, I'll be 36 this year um, at the end of the millennials. But the newer generation is so set on graduating and starting a business. That was never my goal. And it was, you know, when I when I was going to school, it was like, who am I going to work for? What brands am I going to work for? We hustle so hard and work for someone. That, that was what my plan was. I was going to work for someone. Um, and as I grew and learned and worked for all these bosses that I really did not love, I realized, like, I want to be my own boss. And that's kind of how I, you know, used all of my experience to to change into an entrepreneur and really start, you know, my own business. It wasn't something that I had planned when I graduated college. Um, and it, the transition isn't something that happens overnight. I definitely had a full business with business partners that failed. Um, and I feel like every success story has a failure to it. Um, and I, the business was called factory girls. We had a whole factories actually similar to, you know, what you guys do in LC apparel consulting. Um, and we were doing small batch production, but it really didn't work. And we tried really hard. I was waiting tables at night, like trying to work during the day at my business and it just didn't work. Um, so we had to separate. So going through all of that and failing and going back to the mart and going back to sales and then realizing like, I know what I want to do. I had to give it another chance and go back and start assembly line on my own, but it took a lot. It's not something that, you know, I just woke up one day, I had a bank account full of money and just quit everything and started a business. Um, yeah. So we could talk a whole nother um, podcast episode about that too. We got a whole right. That's something like that's 
That's like, a I'm lot. I'm trying to make it short. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't have to make it short. I'm just, I'm interested. In, I'm honestly, I guess I could, that'll lead me into my next segment, which is a success or is a disaster. Um, and in this segment, I like to just discuss something that went wrong in your business that like you learned something from and it helped you become a better, you know, person. And this segment is actually sponsored by the Trendy Big Mouth. She is a wardrobe stylist, millennial mom of two. And she started the podcast as a safe haven for moms, millennials, and lovers of all things fashion. Beware, they talk a lot of shit, and Sundays are for tea. So, Felicia, <laughs> I want go ahead and tell us. I don't know if it's directly related to factory goers or if it's going to be directly related to assembly line, but a time in your business where it was literally a complete disaster that turned into a success. Hmm. Or you learn something and it helped you move forward, but just something yeah, that was blatantly just like terrible. <laughs> I could say doing the most. Like, this is why I always say stay in your lane. And I think that was a challenge what we had at Factory Girls was like, we had good intentions and a mission to do a lot, but we took on too much too fast. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll hear this often from entrepreneurs of like growing pains and growing pains are so real mm -hmm. because you overextend yourself emotionally, physically, financially, and try to take on too much. And then it, you can't actually keep up. So Ooh, for shit, example, Felicia, that's where I'm at. <laughs> uh, listen, I know. So like, being, and you're in production, right? So understand, we did the same thing. Product mm -hmm. development, obviously, you know, takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So one, not being able to do time studies correctly and understanding that we're overextending ourselves and not getting enough revenue. Gotcha. So we may give a quote for a certain amount, and then we end up working more than that was. By the end of the time we get the cash from the client, we didn't make any money. We actually lost money. So over time, you know, it may, may be okay with one client, but over time you start to realize, okay, well, I'm not even being able to keep up with the bills. Like we took on so much work and it seemed like we got far along, but financially we weren't pricing our, our services correctly. So I think that was a big challenge um, and learn lesson that I learned from Factory Girls. It was like, how do you price your services correctly? That's really a challenge. It's hard. You can't just come out with a menu of prices and know exactly what you're going to price yeah. um, all of your services at, especially when you're doing product development. Um, but even it, being able to take on an order for a department store and saying, yeah, we can do a thousand units when you really can't do a thousand units. Like, so I, we learned a lot. And I think also when you have the right partnerships or maybe you don't even have a partnership. Um, I think not having a partnership on my new venture has been, you know, great for me and I've been able to scale, but I am the, I'm the owner and I make the decisions right. um, and I didn't have anyone to answer to. So if there's conflict or you guys don't agree on something, you do have a partnership. So you do have to come to an agreement. So I think there's those challenges when you have a group of people making decisions versus mm -hmm. you are making the decisions. Um, so those are definitely, I went from four partners to no partners. I mean, excuse me, three partners to no partners with my new business. Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of things I learned from the old business that I did not carry over into the new business. And with assembly line, I was in a better place to, I started taking on side projects um, when I had a full-time job mm -hmm. with the showrooms. And then that turned into enough side projects that I could hire someone. And then I would outsource you know, a lot of work to her and then I grew from there and then I would take on more clients and I hired another person. So it's like you start to take on more work, but you also have to pay, you know, team to support you. And I think one of the biggest things is 
treating my staff like I wanted to be treated, like I wasn't treated when I had bosses or leadership and, you know, and being the leader I didn't have. Right. So I think that's really what, why I, I have a good team around me is because I support them and treat them and, you know, the way I wanted to be treated. And imagine how many jobs you had where if they just gave you recognition or even paid for your parking, would you have stayed even though you weren't making that much money? You know what I mean? Like mm. these little things that overcompensate, you may not be able to afford a really big salary, but you may give the staff a little more incentives or give them great recognition or, you know, pay for their laptop or some things that you can help and they feel more entitled and part of the, the organization and they'll grow with you. So I think that's one of my successes now is building a team that feels supported um, and wants to stay with me. I mean, it's a roller coaster ride. It's not, you know, being a small business is, is definitely a challenge. So that the person that works in a small business has to take on that long ride with you. So Gotcha. It makes total sense. Now, with your new biz, with, not even new, with assembly line, what would you say, I guess, is something that you've noticed that is the biggest mistake that designers make coming out the door? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Um, I feel like not letting people in and assuming they know everything. Okay. Um has been a challenge with some designers, but also by the time they get to us, they've already made so many mistakes. So it's like, they are at the point now they are ready. Um, but I can see that a lot of designers make the, make the biggest mistake with not knowing their target customer and they design collections without having a brand guide or going through that whole process of developing the target demographic. Um, and they make product first. So they've already, you know, maybe went through LC Apparel, got a bunch of stuff made, and they don't even have a logo. Um, mm. Or they may have a logo, but didn't really have a brand guide. And they may have a brand guide, but they haven't really thought about who they're selling to. And they just rush to make product. Um, gotcha. It is a long process to develop a brand. Uh, we we recommend a year. And some people just can't sit still. Yeah. And they think, you know, <laughs> I have to, I need to do it now. I need it yeah. in like three months. I need it by my birthday. Like, oh. I'm launching on my birthday. I'm like... Well, you should have started a year, year. ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, what you mean for next year's birthday? Right, you should have started um, last so, birthday. <laughs> right? So I think that a lot of times they'll come to us, and, the, and even when I came to, you know, the studio and, you know, taught that one class on branding, everyone was shaking their heads saying, yes, and yes, I wish I did this first. Yes, mm -hmm. you're right. So we do have this, you know, intense, like, homework you go through in the beginning. It's our discovery session, and we can tell just off of the conversation we have what mistakes you're making. And we bring them all the way back to ground zero and make them fill out this brand discovery homework with us. Um, and a lot of clients, you know, they find like it helps them reset, helps them refocus. And then after that homework is done, they can actually move forward and, and you know, develop product that makes sense. So definitely I would say to answer, long story short, to answer your question, I'd say is not developing your target customer and developing the branding before making a product. Gotcha. Now, what do you say to those, like, because we were talking about know-it-alls, to those who are, I want to sell to everybody. I want to make something <laughs> for everybody. I want to make, you know, extra small to 4X. <laughs> to and, 5X. Yeah, yeah. Like, what? how do you, I guess, navigate through the people who feel like if they don't offer something to everybody, they're... Um, 
not being inclusive to all women, and that's not fair because some women, from some things that I notice, is they're like, well, I don't want to leave anyone out, but it's just like, mm-hmm. well, you kind of have to. Yeah. You have to. I mean, I also, one, we don't have Skim's money, right? Like, we don't have Kim K money to make the millions of units that she's putting out. Yes, Skim's can make double zero to 5X because she has the funds to do so. Right. Um, So I think that a lot of that comes through and explained and unravels itself when we do the branding exercise in the beginning and we talk about the target demographic and they tell me, oh, it's everybody. So I'm like, okay, well, one, we're working with budgets, so we can't do everybody in the beginning. <laughs> like the actual product development is pretty extensive mm-hmm. and costly. Um, also, I give them examples of bigger brands. So if you think of a Balmain versus a Tory Burch, those aren't for everybody. Right. So if you look at any major brand, and I ask them to give me description words of it, they give me description words and we kind of explain the customer, it, it kind of makes sense to them. And they're like, you're right. So I'm like, okay, are you trying to make a collection for Rihanna? Are you trying to make a collection for Meghan Markle? There's two completely different types of customers. Absolutely. So it really, it comes through with that process and like that, that, you know, consultation that we do and just asking those very specific questions. And then it starts to be clearer to them and they don't even realize they then do they will start turning. <laughs> yeah. Then they're like, Oh no, no, no. So that's why even the questions will be like, your brand is blank. And they have to fill in like three words that their brand that their brand is. And they also have to fill in words that their brand is not. So once you start to fill it out, you're like, okay, well, it starts to be more specific. Um, and I've also heard people say, oh, I want to be a luxury brand, you know, like, like Zara. And I'm like, okay, well, Zara is not luxury. <laughs> and luxury and Zara are not the same thing. So again, it comes through with that homework exercise. It's like, what, who is your girl? Is your girl, you know, 22 on a, does she work at night hustling to buy Zara or is she 35 that makes over six figures and can buy designer pieces? Like, who is she? So we go back to just getting very specific about who that girl is and even writing a story um, and, you know, who she is, where she shops, how much money does she have? Mm-hmm. How does she even like to get news? Like, does she read books? Is she on social media? Um, another great example, when you're thinking about how you approach marketing to a target demographic i'm 35 years old i am on instagram i'm not on tiktok so if your customer is 18 you can find them on tiktok but if she's 40 she's probably not on tiktok right so you just got to figure out like what is that range i try to get them in the like ten, less than 10 years try to be in that little range of like who is she and make sure you always focus on her if someone outside of that range purchases your product that is great but that's not really who you're worried about. You can't be on TikTok, NPR, and Instagram. Like, you got to figure out where are you advertising? How are you reaching the, the demographic? Um, and just stay in your lane and really do what that girl wants. And she'll continue to buy from you. You don't want one-time sales. You want them to stay with you and, and you know, and build with you as a brand. Yeah, you want customer loyalty. Right. And you can't do that when you have so many different especially in the younger demographic when, you know, the 16 year old 
from 16 to 20, you're somebody from 20 to 25, you're somebody else. And then from 25 to 30, you are definitely a different person. Completely different. (laughs) You can't say that a 16 year old and a 30 year old are the same target demographic. You know what I mean? So yes, some of us um, over 30 be shopping at H&M and forever 21 and no shame, but like, that's not really who they're targeting. So do you you feel like there are like, is there like a quick, like, branding like maybe three to four rules when it comes to branding that maybe you kind of live by or think that every designer should think about um when you think of like trying to think of like logos i don't know i always think about what branding um is you know like one thing for sure that I feel like a lot of people miss is like they have a certain target consumer in mind and then right, they course. do the opposite in the right. content. Like I recently saw a brand that was just like black owned for the culture. This is everything that's in their Instagram bio, but the first three pictures is all white girls. So I was right. just like, mm. right. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so whenever you're, again, that homework, going back to the target demographic, sticking to that. And I also, part of the homework is getting on Pinterest mm-hmm. to actually visually come up with, you know, fonts that you like, colors that you like. It all goes back to appealing your target demographic. So a lot of clients say, oh, I like, you know, contemporary. I'm like, okay, well, what does contemporary mean to you? Right. Bring out, you know, three fonts that you like. Is it simple typeface like a Balmain font? Or is it a crazy, loud, bright print? You know, like, what is it that visually that you think represents your target customer and the brand and what you want to represent? So I go back to, you know, exercises of showing different brands and how bright and loud they are. Is that where you want to be versus simple, clean, modern? So, yeah, to to your point, it is definitely the major rule is making sure that your target demographic is going to appeal to it. If you're saying your target demographic is sophisticated, you know, educated, wealthy. They may not want a cheapened logo that has a bobbin and a, you know, sewing machine on it. Like that's not really going to attract <laughs> to them. Um, and then my other rule is definitely not using any um, clip art like ever. <laughs> like that's not, that's not, it's going to never use clip art. <laughs> yes. No clip art. Um, and just pay pay the money to get your branding done because it is the lifetime of your brand. It's going to go on your labels. It's going to go on your hang tags, your packaging. Don't get your homegirl to do your logo and she ain't it. Like, it's just That's like, funny. you got to do things on a budget and we totally get that. But like, <laughs> at some point you have to spend the money to invest in your brand. Your branding is going to go. It's what the world sees of you, like what how they perceive you. So it's going to go on your Instagram, your social media, your website, your packaging, your hang tags your shipping bags, your business cards, like it's worth the investment to get it done. So you recommend doing branding first and then going Absolutely. into product development. Now, when it comes to branding, you your key things is to have is like, make sure you have a Pinterest board, make sure you have logos. Um, when mm-hmm. you were discussing like having that brand guide together, what does that entail? And what can a designer expect from getting that? Because I, I don't know. I know from my experience, I work with a whole bunch of people that got all these ideas and not educated by the, I wouldn't. 
at all. <laughs> so right. if you could just break it down, like what a brand guide entails, and then maybe yep. um, just say, you know, around like the price range or what the investment would be to kind of get something like that started. Yeah. So the brand guide definitely has your logos, um, whether it's a, some people just have literally word. Um, they don't have any icons or anything that go with it. It's totally up to you and, and the designer that you're working with. So your logo, um, any additional icons that you may have, and then your colors, your preferred color palette. You'll have your typography, which is the fonts that you use, and that'll include multiple fonts. So if let's just say you did an email blast, what would the font be that you use? Um, and then style some uh, mood boards on like styles of photography and... Yeah, those are the the most important is the brand guides have a different um, different levels to them. So the bare minimum you're going to get is your logo, your colors, and your fonts. Those are the most important, the three most important things. Gotcha. Um, and can anywhere from I've seen brand guides from fifteen hundred up to I mean five grand. Yeah, um, it depends on who you're working with, but I'd say bare minimum you're looking at fifteen hundred. Um, but again, when you look at what you're using those for. Using those forever. More, you're literally using them forever. Um, and may you may change, you know, something and refresh in a decade, but you're really not going to stray from your branding. It's like Nike never changed the swoop, the swoosh. We're not, True. we don't see Adidas, you know, changing. Um, you know, Tori Birch and her little thing, Michael Kors and his MK, like people have their marks and they continue to change, you know, through the seasons and do different collections, but their branding is so you know, true and sticks to, to who they are as a brand, um, as a designer, excuse me. Gotcha. So yeah, definitely don't, don't, don't miss the branding. And I've had, you know, customers, uh, excuse me, clients produce garments and then they're like, yes, I wasn't able to, um, connect. Like there's a disconnect between my branding and my product mm -hmm. because they may just have a logo, but they didn't have colors or they may not have fonts that match. So when they, someone makes them an email blast, it doesn't really go. And a lot of times people will ask you, graphic designers or web developers will say, hey, do you have a brand guide? So if anyone asks you, you should have one. Gotcha. Now, once it's all said and done, as far as like the development from over like the first year, the product development, what do you suggest as um, a new designer um, or someone that's um, coming back and refurbishing their brand? Um, the rollout can be like, do you, how do you feel about like, fashion shows or trunk shows or previews like what do you feel like the the rollout should be once everything is um, complete and ready to go same answer to this question it has to appeal to your target demographic okay. um if she is an older you know customer and she's in her maybe a little bit past 30s like doing a more um, exclusive event maybe at a house or a trunk show would be beneficial for that type of client um it always mm -hmm. depends on your budget I am very anti-fashion show, um, mostly, <laughs> mostly because there's no point to it. I mean, you spend countless hours. And I know someone's listening, shaking their head that you could not even sleep for two weeks because you were out there selling all these crazy pieces that you will never manufacture. Mm -hmm. You had hair and makeup um, for your girls and friends and your friend's homeboy to come and take pictures on the runway and drink champagne but they didn't buy anything from you so it has turned to a circus. <laughs> you know i'm gonna be real though. i know uh it's just a joke and it sucks to watch it happen over and over and people get so burnt out 
doing a damn fashion show. And I'm like, unless you got buyers sitting in the runway, like there is no point. The entire point of fashion shows was for buyers. If you look at the historical reason why we ever did fashion shows, they were not open to the public. Right. It has become a crazy circus and like influencers are now able to go to shows and sit in the front row and celebrities are there. It's really become a social hour, but really the whole point of it is to debut a collection so that it's sold. Right. So if we're not at that level where we can have a million dollar show, like multi-million dollar show like Chanel, you know, there's no sense of doing it. You should use your money to do a better, a better campaign, reaching out to target customers that you want to reach, sending influencer boxes out, you know, using your money in a different way that it's actually going to get, get some traction and make you some money. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to make money. Right now, do um, you feel like direct to consumer is better than uh, retail and wholesale world? Um, I do. I feel like right now, because of the the 2020 pandemic that we're under, you know, a lot of these independent brands um, have been able to control, you know, their own sales and and not worry about retail and have their own own sites and fulfillment and events. Um, and retail has been struggling. Um, but I think, you know, since I started my career in the beginning, it was it wasn't that easy to start a new brand. Uh, and a lot of designers wanted to be in the big box retailers, but you can see a lot more designers coming up and becoming successful, just going direct to consumer. They make more money at the end of the day and they control their brand. So they're not worrying about how their brand is hanging in the back of a store on sale in the sale rack. Um, you know, they definitely have a lot more control over their brand if they, they are selling it direct to consumer. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, what would you say um, is, I guess, crucial once like to re-engage? Because you know we always think about like how it is to start, but or what would you say maybe a time frame? It's time to do something else to re-engage. I just remember just back from my merchandising like program, you know, at school, it was like a twelve week turnaround time. And the introductory phase was the first four weeks, and then the maintenance phase um, and the re-engagement was the last, the next four weeks, and then the four weeks after that would be like clearance promo sale. Do you think that something like that still applies? Like, should you put yourself on a certain time frame to sell through a certain amount of units? Yes, definitely. Um, I think the the best part of the new new industry that we're in is this: the calendar is becoming more fluid. Um, I know you've been in the industry as long as I have. We had very specific deadlines and you knew when cuts were being made and when we had to cut sales had to be in by a certain date because everything was made to order. And once it was made, you may or may not get it um, if you didn't submit your orders. And now it seems that, you know, it's a little more fluid and emerging brands are able to come out with less collections or more collections. It's really up to the designer, but you do need to set yourself up um, on an annual calendar and say, hey, I'm only going to drop four capsule collections this year, and that's going to be one per quarter. That gives you, you know, three months to do the initial launch and then be prepared to, you know, phase on into the next one in the next three months. Um, and it may be something you do twice a year, like the traditional, you know, spring, summer, winter, fall. Um, but you shouldn't just, you should definitely have a plan. And it is up to you how you make that plan. It always depends on your budget and what you can afford to do and what, how much, how many units you can do. If you're doing a pre-sale, you know, do the pre-sale, overcut by a few units and sell out and move on. I always, you know, recommend that you, you sell out. You make 12 pieces and you sell out. No one knows that you made 12 pieces. 
They may think you made a thousand pieces. Sell and grow and scale. I never, you know, suggest that our clients buy thousands of units, not even 500. Um, If you can do smaller batches and get the reaction and see, you know, how the, your target demographic is reacting, you may find that you may need to change your sizing. You thought that you're going to be a lot smaller, but your customers are getting more medium larges. You may not need to have to make that shift. If you're sitting on thousands of units, you can't really make that shift, you know? So just scaling and and knowing, um, having a plan in advance of how many months you can really sell the amount of units that you have. Gotcha. Okay, so our last segment before we wrap up is called It's a Muse. Um, It's a Muse segment is sponsored by um, Elimon. Elimon offers the chic, sophisticated women well-made wardrobe essentials designed to keep you fly today and every day. Visit Elimon.com for their fall sale, which is currently on sale. So my It's a Muse segment is just something that you feel... um, that you can share that inspires someone, whether it be an exhibit, um, a book, an article, a person, um, a podcast, anything that you want to share that you um, are always inspired by or that has inspired you recently that you think someone else should take a look at? Um, Two things. One, I really like how I built this podcast. Um, It gives you a lot of insight to other businesses that are not fashion um, I love one of the, the, one of them was on um, Lululemon and I was really interested in like how they built that brand. Um, but I also learned about, you know, we work and all these other businesses. I love it. I, I listened to the episode with Rent the Runway too. Yes. Yeah. So it's just good. There's some good, there's some good fashion ones on there, but in general, as an entrepreneur, you need to be outside of the fashion bubble too. Um, you know, we spend so much time on our specific education when we're in school for fashion. Um, and then when you get out in the world, you're like, I don't know anything. Like mm-hmm. I learned one thing, but I didn't learn all the rest of this. Um, so even if you're, I always recommend that if you're in, let's just say bridal and you want to be a bridal designer, you should be working at a bridal store. You should be looking at, you know, bridal trade shows and like just involving, engulfing yourself into what that subject matter is for you. Um, and if you are a photographer or sewer, like just, just expanding a little bit more into other, you know, genres of your, of your field. Um, but I love how I built this. And of course, black and fashion. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think just the, the business ones helped me too. And in, in the entrepreneur world of understanding emotional intelligence and how you hire people, like there's so much more than just picking out fabrics, oh. you know? Um, you know, I'm feeling that too, Felicia, the, yeah. the, the, how to hire, what to hire, what to look it's for. There are yeah. people's resumes that just do not add up, like, you know, doing yep. the background it's check. Dope. So yeah, I definitely, I actually haven't listened in a while. I'm so glad you said that. And I'm like, I need to go and like, listen to like five or six episodes back to back to get my head they together. Always, and it's crazy because they always have a failure story and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. great. I'm on the right track. I already failed. Like, yes. Exactly. I'm good. Like you can't get to success without a failure. Like there just is no way. Yeah. I guess um, it's that fear of failing. Like, damn, you know, I, I push so hard. I've done so much and then to get here and then have to like scale back or do something different. I think it's more so like just being afraid, but I mean, it you can is, only yeah. be successful with some failure and like, you know, it, like you mentioned the whole growing pains thing. I feel like that's something I'm going through literally right now. And I'm just trying to figure it out. And every day I'm just, you know, it's different every day. So I definitely 
I definitely feel it's that. The, I, someone told me it's the paralysis of analysis. And I was like, that is so true. Like mm-hmm. you'll get in your own damn head worried about what, like, what are you worried about? What are you so scared about? Mm-hmm. I think we have to set aside what the, you know, what society coins as successful. Like if you think yourself, like what is successful for you? For mm-hmm. me, it's that I'm my own boss. I want my husband to work from home. I want to be able to work from home or we can go to Mexico for a month and we're working. Like I want to be able to have that success. That sounds like amazing. I, I, would love to talk, <laughs> I would love to be a multimillionaire, but like, I mean, that might not happen for me. But what is successful is that I have a work-life balance that I can be a mom and like have kids like those are the things I mean success that are successful to me mm-hmm. and I'm not setting my standards to someone else. Like that is what, what is, you know, what do you want and what is successful to you and how do you make the steps, uh, take the steps to reach those goals and be realistic with yourself and not, mm-hmm. you know, I, when I had factory girls and that crumbled, I was like, I'm done. And everyone was like, why you, you do your own business? I'm like me, like me do my own business. Like how the hell would I ever do my own business? And look at your like, name. <laughs> that wasn't my plan. It was like Factory Girls was a good, easy plug for me because I had partners. And it was like, oh, great. They had already started the business and I was, you know, joined the team. Mm-hmm. So it was like that was already started. I didn't have to start from zero. I was getting the easy way in business because they were already established. Um, and look how that worked out for me, exactly. <laughs> you know, and just getting through the fears and knowing, like getting over that paralysis and and really doing what I could do little by little and knowing that I'm not going to be a six figure entrepreneur in my first year. That just wasn't going to happen for me, but I was able to pay my bills. I had food on the table. Like I had a job, I had a car, I have a house, like I'm okay. And I'm going to make the next step to growing my business, but growing pains are real and you can collapse your whole business. That we work one was crazy. It's the no whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. It's called We Crashed. We Crashed. Oh Lord. Yes. Yeah, I'm definitely will. So if you just want to uh just uh you know throw out all your social media handles and where people can find you and then you yeah. know just tell us what we expect to see next from the assembly line. Yes. Yeah, so we um are on Instagram at the assembly line co. Um <clears throat> and my personal page is at Miss Fee, M-S-F-E. Um, and next for assembly line, I mean, we're really excited to get back to events and education. Like we love, you know, and had the whole plan of launching our workshop series and events talking uh, panel discussion series called the assembly. And it was launching in March. Mm. Um, and we all know what happened in March. Yeah. <laughs> so we literally put that on hold. Uh, but part of, you know, what we love doing is really educating like you, Lenise, and why we click so well is just the education of the industry and helping brands and entrepreneurs get access to resources. And a lot of it is education um, and just not knowing, you know, the, w- what the industry is all about. And we love letting people know from the beginning, like, this is what you're getting yourself into. Here's a couple of resources you have. Here's some great people in the industry to learn and meet from. Um so, yeah, events. I mean, that's what we would love to get back to. But in the meantime, we're I'll busy be there. working on brand guides. Look at me. I'll be there for the events, too. Yes. I, <laughs> I can't know. wait I can't to wait. get back to events. It's so, I mean, I'm still doing I the know. tour, but thank God it's outside. But I want to do something else. I know. Well, thank God we had our successful first. So you want to be a designer retreat. Yeah. And that was amazing. And I can't wait till we take that on the road. Oh, but yeah. um, events just like that and being able to see uh 
the business from multiple aspects and and not just you know from the sewing machine if you're a sewer i know you guys spend so much time in the design room but really you know i tell clients like it's it's 10 percent design and all that you do mm-hmm. making all of that and 90 percent business exactly so you don't get up from behind that sewing machine um you know you, there's so much more out there and you gotta kind of meet the right people and connect with other people that can support you yeah. as much as you support them so you can't work in your business and on your business at the same uh, time but you yeah, always got to price out make sure that you're charging your worth so that you don't get behind absolutely mm-hmm. i mean same question for designers like you want people to pay for your clothing then you should be the same person that pays for people's services absolutely so Absolutely. Just think of it that Couldn't way. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> Couldn't have said it and better. consultation fees are real and they are worth it. So yes. pay LC Apparel Consulting their fees. And pay um, assembly line their fees. <laughs> like we're not, because they're not going to, time is money, you know, and our time and our expertise yep. is, is it needs to be paid for. We pay for education. We pay for things. So, you know, we need, you know, the same thing from our clients. I will not. I will not start services with you until I've had a consultation. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> I, bet, I mean, think that weeds out a lot of the, you know, serious designers and people that want to build a brand that, that that's really where you start is really getting the education and the team and the people that you need to help you. Like you cannot do it yourself. So absolutely find the firms and the consulting firms because they are, you know, legit and, and can help you get to where you're, where you need to be and help you save time and money. Because like you said, time is, is money. money. Facts. So. Well, thank you so much, Felicia, you're for joining so me today. It was a pleasure having you and can't wait to see us do more things. So as I always say, people stay black. Peace out. Bye. All right. Bye, Felicia. Bye. Bye.